Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode 9 of Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, where we make like boffins and bring you all the best books from the Imperial Corps. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you our reading recommendations. With John Richardson away, joining me as a newcomer to the show is Richard Horsley, science fiction writer and the host of the Ready Player Two gaming podcast. Welcome, Richard. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Quite all right. What have you been up to? Oh, writing, gaming, uh, generally enjoying life. So I take it then you're a little bit like me in that you do a lot of different things? Yep. Uh, I have got too many tastes to fit them all into one week, unfortunately. <laughs> so I kind of bounced around quite a lot. I've, I've started writing recently. I've had a bunch of ideas that I wanted to get down on paper for a while. And then that eats into gaming time, eats into family time, eats into everything. And then something's got to give at some point. But yeah, juggle it all. It's good fun. It's, it's nice to have a lot of hobbies. Yeah, it's it's kind of nice to have a bit of a distraction. At the same time, family's important. Yeah, keep hold of that. <laughs> I'll try to. They, they've not gone anywhere yet. Turning to this week's news, we've got a little bit of sad news to start with in that Tanith Lee, very well-known writer from the 1970s and 1980s, horror and fantasy, has unfortunately passed away this week. I don't know if you read any Tanith Lee, Richard? I haven't, no. And actually, this was, I've got to be honest, I'd heard the name before, but this was the first I'd heard about this. I've been reading through articles and, uh, and Wikipedia information, which is obviously the, the most solid information you can find on the internet about anybody. And um, yeah, sounds a bit sad. It sounds like she was having a bit of a hard time getting her stuff pushed out in more recent years, but she's obviously made a big impact uh, in the early sci-fi um, genres back in the 70s. And uh, looks like it's quite sad to see her go. Yeah, it, it's interesting because there's a bit of a community around British science fiction and fantasy, and she's quite well known amongst most of the writers. She's sort of a popular writer's writer, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I certainly, I remember that her books were, were very prevalent in the library, in the fantasy and, and science fiction section. I read one or two of them. I can remember Andre Norton, similar. One or two others, you know, would sort of sit in a particular shelf. And her particular stuff was sort of always borderline horror and fantasy. So you had the supernatural element. And I think that we're much more refined in our tastes these days in that, you know, you see a lot more pigeonholes of stuff. And actually, she sat a little uncomfortably in the out-and-out fantasy, but she also sat a little uncomfortably in the out-and-out horror, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It was always sort of a bit of a where you placed her. Yeah, a bit of a niche blend. Yeah, and not just for the fact that it was necessarily in one book, it was also the fact that in those days, it was also difficult for writers to write outside of their genre. Yeah. So you had your particular section. And actually, horror tended to be quite subdivided. Science fiction and fantasy would kind of lump in together a fair bit, and you'd occasionally see a writer who'd do one or both. But horror and fantasy tended to be separate. And so she kind of covered both to a point at times. So it was, you know, tricky to kind of place her. And I guess that sort of made things difficult to pin her down as to what she was. Now, we're much more diverse, we're much more experimental, much more keen to read things for their sake. And writers have that opportunity to just kind of go, oh, I'll try a bit of that, I'll try a bit of that, which I think is much easier. It feels like a bit of a shame because it, it feels at the moment like um, certainly the science fiction genre is breaking out a little bit. And there's there's niches to be had where people are very passionate in their particular blend of whatever it is they want to write. And it could have been the possibility that she could have come back. Unfortunately, obviously, she's, uh, she's not going to get that opportunity now. But you never know. You may see some finished manuscripts that she was working on. Um, now that she's gone, as is, every, as is with every artist when they go, they uh, they very tend to become more popular after they're dead. Yeah, sure. And I mean, obviously, there's opportunity for her previous publishers to kind of look at a few things. There's an article on the Guardian website 
but that's a little bit light and it's lifted most of its stuff from tor.com and actually the tor.com article is is much more detailed and she certainly she's been you know on the convention circuit for a fair while there's a few of the authors we've spoken about on the podcast ian waits knew her quite well and you know and other people have said that how sad they are about obviously her passing and i think the fact that you know she was struggling to get stuff out in later times it seems a little strange i mean possibly it's down to the fact that the whole ebook thing if a writer didn't get the ebook if you see what i mean or or the indie press you know perhaps if a, an indie press didn't pick her up i don't know it just seems quite strange Okay, so moving on then, we'll go on to segue quite nicely into the second topic I wanted to talk about, which was a little bit about Tor's Open Submissions Month. Now, this ends at the end of May, so I'm afraid for any would-be writers out there, it's one that you've probably missed at this moment in time, but it is something that, that you might want to pick up later. Certainly, it's something I do as a writer, is I trawl around the different publishing houses to try and see when they have open submission months uh, and stuff. And you, you get that on Angry Robot occasionally. There are open submission months there. Also, as I say, at, at Tor, which they've had during May. And they were looking for novellas and they were looking for short stories, which I thought was, was particularly interesting. Did you have a look at this at all? I have, yeah. I've had a look at it. I've had a look at the submission guidelines. Certainly, if you, I mean, it looks pretty difficult to be picked up and they're very open about the fact that they are quite slow at getting through submissions because obviously they're receiving quite a lot obviously you probably shouldn't be driven by money if you're interested in entering into this kind of thing but the financial incentive for being able to get published on tour is quite good and they're very open about that they're also very open about how difficult it is to manage to get yourself through so I quite like the fact that they're really out there and they're making themselves very public in the way that they're approaching the submissions and the way that they're going to review them I don't know. I don't know how many how many submissions they've been getting in recently, but it looks like a really good thing. I'd certainly be interested in doing it if I had a short story ready to go. Well, it was interesting because I basically I looked at it and found out about it at the start of May. And I've been working on the official book for Chaos Reborn for Julian Gollop's new game for Snapshot Games. So I'm about 100,000 words into that. It's probably going to be 120, 130,000 words. But anyway, so, so I've been working on that quite solidly. And obviously it's winding down in terms of the lecturing year. And I saw this you know, sort of open submission point at tour and i thought well what have i got and i took a look around and i found an old novel i'd done probably about 2009 and i got some professional crit on it and hadn't really looked at it because the professional crit was particularly difficult to deal with because they were commenting on particular things that i I wasn't sure how to, to manage at the time so i then went off and did a couple of other books so i revisited this because of the fact that the tour submission was up managed to isolate the text look at it and realize that Actually, it's split quite neatly into two parts. The novella submission was thirty to forty thousand words. Yep. So I did. I did about three weeks of editing on it. Finished it on May the twenty fifth, and I've dropped it in. Beautiful. So the two reviewers who are on there are saying that they're after particular types of science fiction. Yeah. I've submitted an urban fantasy. It is what it is. It's an urban supernatural fantasy. It's got sort of elements of philosophy in it, other bits and pieces, but it is what it is. And I can tell you that when it went in. There were 88 books ahead of me. Wow. It says the average response time over the past 90 days is 14 days. It was 13 days when I submitted. Right. So they've obviously had a rush on the end. Yeah. And I'm now at 84 in the queue. Wow. So. <laughs> wow, it's, it's going well then. Well, I think it, I, well, I really like the fact that, I mean, I, as somebody who's, who's submitted to agents, etc., you don't get anything back. I mean, you just wait and you wait and you wait. And you might get an email back saying no you might get nothing at all and you never know i think it's quite nice to have a a little almost this is how far you in the, you are in the queue take your ticket sit down and just be patient 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think really as a writer, every opportunity you can find, you need to just take it. You know, if there is an opportunity to drop stuff into something, drop it in. You yeah. can only fail. It doesn't matter. You just go on for the next one. It's kind of the hallmark of a writer. And to be honest, if the worst thing that comes of this is you don't hear anything back or you get a rejection, then at least you've revisited a story that you hadn't gone back to for quite a long yeah. time. And you have polished it up, spent some time editing it, re-immersed yourself in the world, and you're ready to possibly do something else with it if it doesn't go the right way with tour. Yeah, absolutely. There's another half of it sitting around that now I can kind of do something with if I want to. Because when I got that feedback back in 2009, I really, really did struggle to to sort of take it in and deal with it. And actually, this gave me an opportunity to revisit it and an opportunity to kind of go, you know what? I know how to edit this now. I know what this means. I know what's wrong here. I know what's wrong here. So really pleased with the way in which it came out, checked it in. And then they had an opening for short stories too. So I just made sure I, I've always got a short story. So I just made sure there was a short story available and checked that in too. So we'll see what happens. Now I've mentioned it here on the podcast. I'll keep everybody informed about the way in which it's going. You'll know next week when John Richardson turns back up, I'll give you an update of the position in the queue, <laughs> which I'm sure will be, you know, 81. 82. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it depends how fast they're reading. Yeah, I, I've got to say, I think that, you know, their return time, it might be 14 days over the past 90, but because they're going to get this rush at the end of the month, yeah. it's going to be a lot longer. It is something, however, that was picked up at EasterCon. It was certainly something that was mentioned by several writers at EasterCon that this particular open submissions month that Tora are running is a very, very good way to get yourself in. Yeah, OK, you could write a short story. Fine. You know, there's a short story submission point. But the novella, I think it's from 17 to 40,000 words you can put in. It's a nice sort of step up towards the novel length, which if you're not used to writing a novel, it's a good stepping stone. I think it's a good goal. That. If somebody's starting out and they're not 100% sure whether they can make it all the way to a full-blown novel, don't try. If you, want to, yeah. if you want to try something smaller, just shoot for it. I mean, I think they've said that for the novella standard that they're not going to review anything that is below 17,500 words. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're aiming for between 30 and maybe just tipping over 40,000 words. So that's kind of the bracket they're after. But um, they said that if it's, if it's great, send it in or... As as is with everything, you know, uh, the second edit is the first edit minus 10%. So there's always ways to slim it down or even pad it out if you need to to get the word count that you're after. But if you're the, if you're a first-time writer, shoot for it. Go mm. for it. If it turns out that you haven't managed to finish your story, then go for a full-blown novel. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a good thing. And it does give an opportunity to kind of bypass, as you said at the start, the agent process. There are some very good agents out there and some, you know, who have placed some very good work and certainly... I've spoken to several at different conventions, but this is quite direct between the publisher and the author. So it's a nice opportunity to benchmark yourself a little bit too. So yeah, so worth a try. I think Tor are one place that are running this kind of thing. As I said, Angry Robot have done that in the past. Abaddon did run a, a similar sort of open submissions period earlier in the year, might do next year. So worth checking out and seeing what they're up to. And, you know, just browsing a couple of these websites, seeing what their submission entry points are and how they're looking at new work, where they're getting new work from. It's quite surprising when you do start getting into the world of agents to see who's on whose books and who's going where and who's going you know, where else. Certainly the times of authors sticking to one publisher, it's not like that so much now. You do see a few authors are like that, but often it's about where you can sell the work. Yeah. It's, I mean, granted, I'm, I'm very, very new to all of this, but the general consensus from a lot of new authors or authors that have managed to have a single work published is that maybe their publisher isn't showing them as much dedication 
as they would like to show to their work and in turn to their agent and their publisher. So they're happy to shop around because they don't feel like they're getting that kind of relationship. That's not always the case with all of them. Obviously, it's going to be different for everybody. But the whole publishing world is such it's so up in the air. Every agent is different. Every publisher is different. Every imprint is looking for something unique and they have got their own individual tastes in the same way that every writer has. So it can be very difficult to get that specific match. And the kind of thing that Tor or Iron Robot doing or anything like that is a great way to get yourself out there, get yourself seen and possibly get yourself picked up or at least have something to point to if somebody asks if you've uh, had any work before. Yeah, the great illusion, of course, and I've ascribed to this great illusion several times. The great illusion is that there's a quality threshold absolutely governs everything. And often a lot of the time it isn't that quality threshold. Certainly the publishers want a level of quality about what they're prepared to publish and that's understandable. But at the same time, they're also looking for something that hits the market just right. Mm. So sometimes you'll see something, and I'm sure you've done this as a writer, i certainly done it, you'll go down to Waterstones or you'll go somewhere and you'll read a book that people are raving about and you'll go, I can write a better book than that. <laughs> you know? That's a dangerous and, thing to think. Well, it's, it's not, because actually every writer should be a little bit confident about their own ability. And, you know, that's not denigrating the person who they might be reading. It's just looking at it and saying, you know what, actually I'm good enough. Once you get to that stage of being good enough, then it's about the opportunity. So I think, it, you know, it's worth throwing your hat in every time you can. Just put yourself out there. Yeah, definitely. The only time you fail is when you don't try. So turning to our third topic for today, our third topic being the first pictures and look at Ridley Scott's new film, The Martian. Now, do you know anything about The Martian at all, Richard? I am all up in The Martian. I ah, have. I yeah. absolutely loved this book. This is possibly my favourite science fiction novel of the last five years. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> That's a decent recommendation then. So... It certainly got a lot of popular press in the science fiction circles. It, it was certainly was nominated in a lot of categories. We did see it sort of appear on quite a lot of lists and everything else. And I think what's nice, and without reviewing the book, because we <laughs> might do that some point later, but what's nice about it is it takes a very small concept. You know, travelling to Mars ain't small, <laughs> but it's a finite concept, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. You know, in terms of what they've constructed. It's a very, it's a, it's a reasonably simple story. There's nothing hugely out there about the premise of the entire book but the the way in which it's told and the delivery of almost everything in it along with the humor is well certainly for me extremely endearing i really really enjoyed this matt damon is uh, he's not got a particularly great track record at the moment for being abandoned on planets you know so uh, <laughs> hopefully this is going to be a better film in the first pictures i've got to admit the first pictures they don't give you very much do they really but um i guess it's just making it a bit more real for those people that are really excited about the movie coming out i quite like the fact that it's got that look of because of course we've seen quite a lot from the rovers yeah there's no reason why they can't do this to look like we know mars to look like if you see what i mean yeah yeah and i think it's because you know what we're saying about opportunity at the right time because mars is topical yeah at the moment obviously having a film about a man abandoned on Mars is going to hit all of those buzzwords and the cinematography is going to immediately evoke the actual images of what we're seeing. So it's quite haunting, the, the sort of synergy between just these one or two images that we've got and what we know about the rover and what we know about the stuff that the rover's seen and the way in which the light works on the planet and the, the arid landscape and so on. Yeah. So forth. 
Matt Damon, obviously, his role in Interest has been sort of poked fun at a little bit in terms of what's there. But also, I mean, Ridley Scott's had one or two films recently that haven't gone as well as they planned. You know, an awful lot put into Prometheus, an awful lot put into other films. This, because it's so simple and sort of stripped down, it looks very interesting. And the cast is stunning. Yeah, yeah, very, very Absolutely good. Absolutely stunning. The difficulty with it being stripped down, you've got to be very careful because it, with the more stripped down it is, the more uh, obvious glaring problems are going to be. So with it's not a big action movie. There's not an awful lot going on. It's very focused on a single character and a, a smallish cast of supporting characters. So... I think it's you've got to be a bit careful because if they don't get it right, it could be very, very obvious they haven't got it right. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who have read the book that aren't going to like it. Hopefully there are going to be a lot of people that have never heard of the book that are really going to like it. But that's always the case. It always works both ways. Hopefully we won't see Tom Hanks and, and the beach ball. <laughs> <laughs> Still Wilson floating off into the Martian landscape. The thing is, I mean, who would have who would have put uh, George Miller with Mad Max Fury Road? I mean, realistically, the guy's done almost nothing for the last 20 years. I think he did Happy Feet and possibly Happy Feet too. But uh, you put him together with the right concept and... He ran away with it. It was absolutely amazing. Obviously, he was a creator, but you never know. The great synergy about movies, and certainly the movies that have come from very good books or very popular books, is that you never know what's going to happen. It could be extremely poor, but hopefully, you know, you never know. It could go either way. It could be something absolutely fantastic, and it could almost outshine the book. Okay, we will head to an advert break, and we'll be right back. Greetings, Commanders. Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Is your life like this? And we're back. Okay, Richard, what book have you got for us? I have got The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. This was one of the books that was shortlisted for the 2015 award that I've forgotten the name of. It was shortlisted for the 2015 Clark Award. That's him. That's the fellow that it was shortlisted for. Yeah, it didn't win, uh, but that's absolutely fine because obviously if you're shortlisted for the RC Clark Award, then you've got something good going on. Uh, Station Eleven was the book that won, but I decided that I was going to read The Girl With All The Gifts on recommendation from a friend, and he's never given me a bum steer, and this time he didn't either. Let's launch right into the blurb. Okay. Every morning, Melanie waits in her cell to be collected for class. When they come for her, Sergeant Parks keeps his gun pointed at her while two of his people strap her into the wheelchair. She thinks they don't like her. She jokes that she won't bite, but they don't laugh. Melanie is a very special girl. This is by M.R. Carey, and I'm assuming that we can't give away too much on this, but it certainly has that sort of quality of suggesting that she's some sort of transformational monster or something, uh, it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be extremely difficult with this book specifically to not give anything away, but I think just from reading the blurb, or if you read an extract from the book, you're going to get the idea where this kind of thing is going. The excellent thing about this book is that it's very point of view through a lot of it, and it jumps point of view from person to person as the book progresses. But certainly at the beginning, it is very focused on Melanie's point of view. And she is this girl who lives her life in this cell. And every morning she is woken up, she has a gun pointed at her. She is told to sit in a wheelchair. She sits down. She tries to make banter with the people that are pointing guns at her. That doesn't go very well. She gets wheeled into class. She goes through a lesson while strapped down into her wheelchair. And then she gets wheeled back into her room. Now, she doesn't know anything different. Life has been like this since she was born. And it's extremely interesting to read this from her viewpoint because she doesn't think that there's anything wrong with this. She thinks it's perfectly normal. Mm. And it's, that particular part of the book was very powerful and it was written really, really well because she doesn't, like I say, she doesn't know any different. She thinks it's well, perfectly it's, fine. 
it's Plato's The Cave, isn't it? So for anyone that, that doesn't know, Plato's principle of the cave or thought experiment of the cave is the idea that if you chain people down in a cave and all they see is flickering shapes on the wall, then for the rest of their life, then they will perceive that as being all there is of reality. And if you break the chains and you let them out, what we conceptualize as freedom, they would not necessarily understand. So when they try to come to terms with what that is, that actually is a very difficult sort of acclimatization. His idea is that people's understanding of reality is relative to the condition that they are able to perceive reality through. So based on what senses you have, based on whatever other restrictions you have in the way in which you perceive reality, the cave is the kind of thought experiment that kind of emphasizes that. And I would assume that this is kind of using something similar to try and get you into the perspective of this individual. Because of course, your free, your related life, your own life is, is very different to hers. So to start with, you might feel sympathetic, and I guess then that is used by the writer, because if it's a good book, the writer should be using whatever the reader comes to the table with. Yeah, Melanie's an extremely smart girl. She perceives everything. She picks up on everything. Nothing gets past her. And so the adults that come into her world, that have obviously come in from outside and have got experiences and knowledge outside of her very confined space, every now and again might let something slip. And she'll grab onto that piece of information. She'll clutch onto it. She'll form it into her own uh, understanding of the way that the world works. And sometimes that's wrong. And sometimes she draws incorrect conclusions. And it's interesting to see her perspective and the way that she thinks that that fits into the world as she understands it. Things change a little bit later on. But there is a, uh, a very strong connection between her and one of her teachers very early on. And that gets drawn out as the book goes through as well. I think it's fair to say that if you enjoy apocalyptic worlds, if you enjoy almost science pieces as much as science fiction that is focusing on a character is completely out of place, then you will definitely enjoy this. And as the book progresses, it becomes something different and it grows. And as she grows and as she learns, the book does the same thing and it expands and her world gets bigger and bigger. And it's all about how she copes with that and how the characters around her cope with that as well. It's very, very entertaining. I would guess then that essentially the writer's using the intimate relationship between her and the reader to begin with to then take you into that sort of wider expansion which is something that writers do you know you you use a familiar context to begin with and you you lead people out but by establishing this as a very small environment a very controlled environment to start with you give more opportunity for that relationship to be very connected. Yes, definitely. And then then you you know move it out. You know, I'm doing my absolute best to to kind of give ideas of this without you know giving anything away. <laughs> yeah, so, it is. Um, as it is very as difficult. you are, if you're looking for a book that has that kind of intimate relationship between the character and the reader, that kind of thing that you can you can read late at night and know that you know you're kind of completely you know immersing and hooked. Then I think it is something that may grab you. So, okay, where can we get this? You can get this on Amazon. You can get it. Kindle edition is £3.66. You can get it. Now, it's saying that hardcover is from £2 on, on Amazon, which doesn't make any sense to me. But paperback apparently is £3.85, which is an extremely good price for this book. Uh, audio download is £15.74. So whichever medium you decide to grab it in, I would massively recommend it. I mean, I don't know how much weight that carries because it's the first time you've heard my voice. But yeah, I really, really enjoyed this book. And it's, it's got sporadic bursts of humor in just the right places. And in some places, it's an extremely awkward humor because of the environment that they're in. And I really enjoy that as well. So it works really well from all perspectives. So do you have an extract you want to read? Oh, I've got an extract you want to read if you desperately want to hear me read an extract. Oh. If my if my blurb didn't put you off, you can hear an extract. I'm gonna... I, am, I am happy to listen to an extract, okay. although 
So I'm going to read right from the beginning of the book, because if I cut too far in, it's going to give far too much away. So I'm going to read straight from chapter one, one right at the beginning. Her name is Melanie. It means the black girl from an ancient Greek word. But her skin is actually very fair, so she thinks maybe it's not such a good name for her. She likes the name Pandora a whole lot. But you don't get to choose. Miss Justino assigns names from a big list. New children get the top name on the boys' or the top name on the girls' list, and that, Miss Justino says, is that. There haven't been any new children for a long time now. Melanie doesn't know why that is. There used to be lots every week or every couple of weeks. Voices in the night, muttered orders, complaints, the occasional curse, a cell door slamming, and then after a while, usually a month or two, a new face in the classroom. A new boy or a girl who hasn't even learned to talk yet. But they got it fast. Melanie was new herself once, but it's hard to remember because it was a long time ago. It was before there were any words. There were just things without names, and things without names don't stay in your mind. They just fall out, and then they're gone. Now she's ten years old, and she has skin like a princess in a fairy tale. Skin as white as snow. So she knows that when she grows up, she'll be beautiful. The prince is falling all over themselves to climb her tower and rescue her. Assuming, of course, that she has a tower. In the meantime, she has a cell, the corridor, the classroom, and the shower room. Mm, so there you go. Present tense as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all written in that. It's all very immediate to the character that you're reading about at the time. Sure. Okay. All right. So that would be The Girl with All the Gifts. And after this break, we'll come back with my book choice. Space can be lonely. But sometimes that's just what you want. Choose your holiday. The gas giants of Alia. Partying the night away in Yorkville on Aquada. Or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockforth Corporation makes your holiday special. And will let nothing disturb you. And we're back. And we're going to move on to my book choice for today. So I've chosen a book that is the sequel to a book that we've already covered on the show. We covered Dark Eden by Chris Beckett. I mentioned at the time that I had to go and read Dark Eden because I knew I was doing a review of Mother of Eden. Mother of Eden being out on the 4th of June. Well, I got through Dark Eden. We reviewed it on the show. I've read Mother of Eden. I've submitted the review and it's a cracking sequel. So, and it really expands the world of Dark Eden and has a very different quality because Dark Eden, quite claustrophobic, dealing with about sort of six or seven generations of these colonists that have descended from two people that were left behind on this planet. It's about 200 of them are then all very inbred and all left in this one community and they rebel and expand and a few of them leave and so on and so forth. And the end of Dark Eden is about the adventure of the group that splits away. We start Mother of Eden several generations later and it's very interesting because you've got the individuals who were the main characters from Dark Eden are now essentially the sort of legendary patriarchs who died off several generations ago. So they have become these sort of mythical figures and humanity has expanded across more of the world of Eden. And they're more like nations. They're more tense with each other. Initially, they're all one big family and it, it then broke out into tension. Now they're very much one side doesn't like the other side and so on. Here's the blurb from the book. We speak of a mother's love, but we forget her power, power over life power to give and to withhold. Generations after the breakup of the human family of Eden, the John folk emphasised knowledge and innovation, the David folk tradition and cohesion. 
but both have built hierarchical societies sustained by violence and dominated by men, and both claim to be the favoured children of a long-dead woman from Earth that all Eden knows as Jella, the mother of them all. When Starlight Brooking meets a handsome and powerful man from across Whirlpool, she believes he will offer her an outlet for her ambition and energy, but she has no idea that she will be a stand-in for Jella herself and wear Jella's ring on her finger, and she has no idea of the enemies she will make, no inkling that a time will come when she, like John Red Lantern, will choose to kill. Oh, very ominous. Yeah. So, did you ever read Marion Zimmer Bradley? I did not, no. Okay, or Anne McCaffrey? No, oh. <laughs> sorry. So, the interesting thing about both of those authors was that, essentially, they wrote a series of books where people colonise a planet, and then you had the novels cover different yeah, generations. Yeah. And so some of the people of the planet would look back at previous ancestors and, and see them as legends and so on. Now, Marion Zimmer Bradley's was a little bit more interesting than Anne McCaffrey's. Anne McCaffrey's tended to be a bit of a formula. Don't get me wrong, I love Anne McCaffrey. I have an entire shelf of Anne McCaffrey's <laughs> books. I utterly, utterly adore those books. There's going to be a um, but at the end of this sentence, isn't there? I, I was just going to say that Marion Zimmer Bradley had a little bit more of the sort of mythic quality between these generations. People would talk around the fireside about characters from a previous book. And if you'd read the previous book, you would sit there and they would have their story about what those characters had done. And you'd sit there going, that's a bit different to what actually happened. You know, it's quite clever in that regard. And you've got that here. Certainly Chris Beckett, who for years wrote short stories in Interzone and then moved on to novels. Here, what you have with this particular book is because Dark Eden looked back at these two colonists as their sort of founders and as their legend and so on and so forth, we are now further removed from that. So we are looking back at the original legends that were in the first book, which have become confused. And then we're looking at a subsequent set of legends as well. And it is really interesting because it gives you a kind of take on human society and a reflection on how far away we are from some of the stories that we hold dear as being truths, things that we kind of look back and, you know, and revere and remember and kind of characters in history that we look back and say, this is how they were and this is what happened. And you have this similar kind of idea, albeit in a regressive society, i.e. a society that's sort of lost its way from being very technological because, you know, they came on a spaceship, yeah, the crash landed. They're now a tribal society. You know, they have regressed and gradually forgotten the technology that's there. But the John folk, named after John Red Lantern, who was the main character of the previous book, the John folk are much more interested in recapturing that technology, whereas the David folk are more interested in essentially in maintaining their control over the different settlements yeah. as things move forwards. So, it, you know, it's very interesting. It's told... In first person, it's told in split perspective. So essentially each chapter is the perspective of a different character. Not completely different. You know, you follow strands, but you have different characters for each chapter. And they sort of recount what's happening to them at that particular time as they go through. Because it's in first person like this, they all have a different kind of voice in the way in which they talk, as well as the patois of Eden, as it were. There's a way in which they speak anyway, which has kind of evolved from Earth speak. And has this got stronger have... from the, since the first book? Has this kind of evolved, the dialect has evolved with the generations in the book as well? I'd say probably not. It's mostly the same. There's one or two new words introduced, but it's mostly the same. Chris has tried to keep it fairly consistent in once you've adapted you don't have to adapt further but the different characters very much because they have different priorities in their lives they have very different tones so the john folk 
have a slightly different tone to the Jeff folk, who Starlight Brooking is Jeff folk. Okay, so there's uh, Jeff folk, there's John folk. Oh, there's it's quite a lot. How many there's folk? Jeff folk, John folk, Tina folk. Oh, wow. And then there's a couple of other. But essentially, they all come off of original characters that you had in the previous book. Okay. And they generally group into the John folk and the David folk. Okay. Because John led the rebellion and David became the leader of those that didn't rebel. So the main two groups are these. And the emphasis in this book, it offers a lot of social comment on gender politics. It offers some comment on the nature of societies and how aspirational societies sometimes forget those who are at the bottom. I see, yeah. So if you're reaching for the stars, the standard of living in your cities might not be as good as it should be because all your, your energy, your money, your focus, your economy is geared towards reaching for the stars. And there's kind of a little bit of that going on. So... There isn't really, and I, I think this is quite nice, despite the fact that initially you kind of see a, a binary, you see good people, you see bad people. In this, there are individuals that you, you like, that you support, but all of the settlements have become so much more interesting in that there are good and bad elements about all of them. So it's quite a nice social comment on how humans group together, how they, you know, how they manage together. And if their environments are aspirational at all, then generally speaking, somebody suffers. This feels quite a lot to me like uh, almost the aftermath of Lord of the Flies. Yeah, there's certainly a connection with Lord of the Flies in terms of the way in which it works. And I certainly, I, I think I referenced Lord of the Flies with the previous. Um, yeah, the yeah. Previous. It's, it's got a little bit of that. I mean, it's immersive. And I think the positive, I would say, is that because the tone and the objective of this particular book is quite different to the first one, it promises quite a lot for Chris Beckett to be able to explore this world more. And I, I like that because what I was saying about Anne McCaffrey earlier, you tended to find after you got past a few books, it tended to be a little bit of a formula. Mm -hmm. And actually here, this book does something quite different to the first one. To start with, I kind of, I did sort of wish for some of the, the tight writing of the first one, the claustrophobia of the first one, the sort of decadent quality, the gradually fading away quality of the, of the society, whereas this is much more diverse. And so you don't quite have that atmosphere, but it's got its own thing. Yeah, I think that's that's the hallmark of a great storyteller that can take a universe and adapt it and deliver it in a completely different way that's still engaging. It's always jarring at first when you shift from one way of consumption of that universe to a completely different one. But if they can manage to pull it off, it's it really good. It's, it shows that they're extremely diverse in the way that they're able to bring forward this world and deliver it to you. And it's quite enjoyable different priorities for different stories yeah you know, he's trying to tell different stories in this same setting and i think that's good i think that's clever i mean to give another reference pratchett did it very different tone totally different tone to this but the point being is he was trying to tell different stories yeah you know rather than trying to tell the same story with different cast and then again you know rather than repeating a successful model he's actually expanding the wider text because of the fact that he's, he's telling different stories Anyway, I've got a little bit here, so we'll delve into chapter one. So chapter one is from the perspective of Glitterfish Brooking. The trouble began on the Wakem. I left Mikey with his dad on the sand for the first time and went out gathering bark with my Uncle Dixon, my brother Johnny, and my sister Starlight. Johnny had just come back from over Knobhead, and as we paddled through the trees, he told us the news he'd heard there. I'll tell you a really interesting thing, he said. Hmm, hmm, hmm went the tall trees in the water all round us. Everything was the same as it has always been. The sky was black above us, the tree lanterns shone, the wavy weed glowed beneath the water. Yeah, really strange thing, Johnny said. 
I didn't know what to make of it. I was speaking to that guy Harry over there. You know, old clawfoot Harry with the missing fingers. And he said that blokes have been coming over to main ground lately from right across far side of Whirlpool. Not to Knobhead itself, mind you, but further down Alpway to places like Vehicle House and Brown River. And if you can believe this, he said they bring metal with them. Not bits of metal from Earth, but metal they've found for themselves in the ground here on Eden. Oh, jealous heart, I whispered, suddenly full of dread. Johnny's news felt to me like the breeze that came from the deep darkness before a storm. It was nothing in itself. All it did was make the lantern flowers sway a little on the branches. But you knew it was just the start. Metal meant change. Metal was something to fight over. Like the followers of John and David used to fight and fight over that metal ring from Earth. I thought of my little Mikey back on the sand. And I imagined a storm of blood breaking over him. So there you go. You've got, you know, very clear tone, don't you? Yeah, it, jumped, it jumps you straight into the fact that things have been changing and things are about to change. It sets the scene yeah. extremely early on. And he's, he's kept up that patois yeah, yeah. Of, the, you know, of the the previous text. It's a bit difficult uh, not to get caught up on the fact that he went to a place called Knobhead. <laughs> I thought that was going to come up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I thought we were a little bit more refined than that, but okay. Uh, well, you, hey, you invited me on. <laughs> Glitterfish doesn't feature very much. She's Starlight's sister, yeah. so she only has one or two chapters. She's one of those people who stays at home. You know, essentially, she's the one that wants to stay. She's making a family, and actually, she becomes the unity of the piece because at the beginning, she's there. Starlight goes off and does stuff, comes back, and by the end, she meets her again. She acts as like a filter or a, a measure for us to see how much Starlight has changed. Okay through the story, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, so. I, I quite like the fact that they've got these fanciful names that in our society would be weird, Starlight and Glitterfish and Knobhead and stuff like that, but for them it's totally normal. There's nothing to scoff about. It's absolutely fine because that's just well, the way it's, it is. Well, it's got... It's also, there's a juxtaposition because you've got John Red Lantern, John being completely normal, Red Lantern, that's a bit yeah, odd. Yeah, yeah. Then you've got Greenstone Johnston. Right. You know, that juxtaposition I think is quite interesting because it suggests that they've got this old earth tradition, but they've also got this thing of naming themselves after things that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Things they experience. So, you know, and that sort of moves between the the different stuff. Okay. So that is mother of Eden. Now it's not available at the moment, but you can pre-order on Amazon. The Kindle edition is six fifty nine. The hardcover is fourteen ninety nine, and the paperback is five pound twenty one. So that's probably the trade paperback at this stage. So that's the the slightly larger version. And I'm assuming there'll be a mass market paperback later in the year. Comes out on the fourth of June, and you'll be seeing my review over on sfbook.com fairly shortly. I think that's scheduled to come out on the day it comes out on the fourth of June. Beautiful. Okay, so that was Mother of Eden, and we're going to go to a quick advert break now, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about writing, in general with Richard, who's currently working on his novel Static Bush. Is your life like this? Take that, evil pirate scum! Pew, 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 pew! Pew, 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 pew! Second technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. Second technician Forrester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken. It could be like this. Drive charging.
come to LaveCon, the science fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July, just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com. And we're back. Okay, Richard. So with the fact that we've obviously got you this week, one of the things that I know you're currently working on is a, a science fiction novel. You've started on this piece called Static Push, which I assume you're hoping to get out later this year. Yep. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about it and yeah. your background in writing? Yeah, I loved it. Well, my background in writing is going to be very brief. I've written Static Push and that is it. So, <laughs> so there you go. What motivated you to say, you know what, I'm going to write a science fiction novel? I've been an avid gamer for a very, very long time, and, and I don't know if necessarily that comes with an active imagination, but certainly for me, gaming worlds and immersing yourself into different universes and strongly within the sci-fi universes as well, you get a, a really great imagination and things that you could possibly do in these worlds. And I've always thought, wouldn't it be great if I could create my own world? Wouldn't it be great if I could create my own situations, have my own characters, and... For a long, long time, I really wanted to get into game development, and that didn't happen. Life took me in a different direction, and I had these stories in my head and these things that I wanted to get out. I started reading more and more sci-fi novels, and I started reading more and more um, kind of indie novels and people who had been self-publishing their stuff, and I thought, you know what? This is something that I could do. And NaNoWriMo came around, and I thought, let's do this. Let's, let's try. And I had um, the beginnings of a manuscript, a couple of chapters that I'd started writing in a framework that I started writing many, many years ago. And I picked it back up, and I thought, let's, let's go NaNoWriMo. Let's see if I can add to this, if I can flesh it out. And I went for it, and it just blew up very, very quickly. I ran away with it. The ideas that I had in my head came out really fast. And all right, not all of them were great. But as, uh, as you go back to it later on, you evolve it, and you change it, and... It's uh, it's become something that I've really enjoyed doing and I speak about it to a lot of people and people have read the stuff that I've written and I get positive reviews, I get negative reviews and I change things and I it's just the shifting world that you get to create yourself and other people can enjoy it. It's it's a really great feeling and I'd encourage anybody who's even thought about writing their own story to just go ahead and do it because even if you don't publish, even if you don't get anywhere with it, at least you've done it and you get that feeling for yourself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it is important to to sort of give this a go. And I mean, obviously, I've taught writers now for, for something like 12 or 13 years. And the reward is that you can shape something. You can kind of see and benchmark yourself, barometer yourself. You can also get one of those stories out and kind of start seeing what works. And sharing it around is, you know, incredibly important. There's a lot of people that do talk about writing as being sort of a very solitary business. But actually, you need those people around you. You need those editors. You need those people to read. Yeah, you definitely do. Um, give you a comment or two, particularly people who've got some experience in, you know, in having written stuff themselves. Yeah. So you've envisaged this novel. How long do you anticipate it going to be? In terms of words or in terms of storyline? Do you write in terms of word counts or do you write in terms of chapter counts? I, I wrote in terms of writing, if I'm being totally honest. To start with, I didn't have a, uh, a necessarily strong plan. When I went into NaNoWriMo, I gave myself a framework and I tried to stick to that. I didn't necessarily shoot for word counts, although NaNoWriMo does give you a target. It gives you a 50,000 word target to try and shoot for. I overshot that by quite a distance. So uh, as it stands at the minute, it stands at around about 110,000 words. And you do read up and you do kind of try and find out what 
the average size or the average length of a novel of this kind is going to be and, and try and shoot for that because you don't want to make it too short that people are going to be a little bit put off by it you don't want to make it too long because it's a it's a first novel but I think I was writing for the story more than I was sure. writing for, for anything else. But I was writing for people who wanted to read it as well. And that's the great thing, as you, as you rightly said. It's important to engage with people who are likely to read the book because you are writing it for yourself in a way, but you are also writing it for other people. And I think it's really important to engage with the people that you're writing it for. These people are potentially going to be consuming the book, get input from them and, and find out how they're feeling about the entire thing and then take that on board. And it is important to take things on board because I've been knocked back a few times while I've been writing this. And you've just got to take it as a positive in anything that you do creatively, it, it's you've got to make sure that any anything that anybody says you don't take as a negative. You've got to make sure that you shape and work what you're doing around that. Yeah, no, I mean that's you only get creative confidence in what's you know, or confidence in your creativity when you know it's out there and you can kind of see intention. And it sometimes it takes years. You know, I, I'm yeah. kind of coming at this from a slightly more patient point of having <laughs> written a few things that are still sat in boxes. It can be tempting sometimes to to put everything into the first one and it isn't necessarily the piece you need. You just need to get it out and yeah. then you learn from all those mistakes you write the next one and so yeah. on. In terms of novel length, you probably anything between 80 and 140 these days. Yeah. Del Rey seem to like the slightly longer. They go to, uh, certainly their website has said submissions um, could go up to 140,000. Whereas often on ebook, you'll see pieces that, that go out at 60 which is perfectly fine, particularly if, you know, if you know what your Kindle market is and you know what price point you're going to hit. So, you know, ebooks make things flexible in that regard. Of course, you've then got that decision to make once you've completed in terms of what's there as to where you're going to pitch and who you're going to pitch for. So you mentioned NaNoWriMo. How did you find that experience? Absolutely amazing. Okay. It was brilliant. It was really, really good. I think possibly that if you were writing for something like Tor.com or something else that had a deadline, so you had a word count and a deadline, a lot of the time, especially when you're starting out, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, I certainly had. I had absolutely no idea. I didn't know what my targets were. I didn't know what I would be, what I would like to try and hit. I was writing now and again, and a massive trap that I fell into, and I don't know if everybody falls into this, but... I fell into a trap of writing something and then revising it and then revising it and then revising it. And then I never carried on. And I had this story that I really wanted to get out, but I felt like I had to perfect the part that I was working on at the time. And it's a real sink. It's a real hole that you can end up falling into. And NaNoWriMo, not necessarily forces you, but NaNoWriMo really encourages you to, uh, to just go for it. Just write. Just put it all down on paper. Let the words flood out of you. Get it down. Don't worry about going back and revising everything later on because nobody's going to see it. You're the only one that's going to see it. Go back. Mm. Do all of that stuff later on because it's only it's going to hold you up and you're going to start second guessing yourself. You're going to start worrying about where you're going. You need to shoot the pros out there and then you need to work on refining the way that you've delivered it a little bit later on. And that was something that I was really struggling with earlier on. And NaNoWriMo pushed me to really just go for it and get that out there. It was, it was possibly the best thing I could have done, to be honest. Well, it, it's interesting because most people edit better on the page than they do in their head. And that's actually the key thing. Yeah. The thing that stymies you, the thing that stops you is that you think that you need to keep editing it in your head. And actually, you're better off just putting it down on the page. Yeah. Barbara Baig says this in um, one of her writing books where she talks about baseball players hitting lots of baseballs. And writers should actually spend some time just sitting down and writing and not thinking about deadlines or anything else or what it's for writing words and seeing what happens and that enables you to exercise that imagination as you go and that's probably a good thing but of course when you're in a purple patch as you probably were for the the NaNoWriMo month you just got to keep it with the flow you know you have to to push and there are days when it's tough but you just have to push on and um you know and you do uh my NaNoWriMo experience was 
was very interesting and different to yours. Right. The only time I did NaNoWriMo was the first year it was ever launched, which I believe was in 1999. It might have been 2000, actually. And I had a hundred and something thousand words of a novel already written and misread what they said and so posted it immediately. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And they thought that you were the fastest typer ever. Your keyboard's melted. and I posted it. I posted it on the 1st of November. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's pointing at you shouting cheat. I got hate mail. Oh, no, really? (laughs) Oh, dear. It wasn't a very good book either. Oh, okay, um, that's fine. I've got, you know, I I hope for mine. I hope for Static Push. But you never know. The first work is never going to be the greatest work. As much as you you hope it's going to be and as much as you really, really want it to be, it's it's not going to be. And I would hope that I put out more stuff and I would hope that it's it's better than Static Push because you keep growing and you keep getting better, hopefully. There's different places you can go to kind of improve stuff. So youwriteon.com is very good in terms of the first three chapters, checking it up there and getting peer review and also getting the opportunity to sit in a chart where you might get reviewed by a literary agent. What happens there is you review other people's work, they review yours and everybody rates work and it sits in a chart. Yeah. At the end of the month, the top three are picked up by a literary agent and given a crit. So yeah, so you know, it's worth having a look at if it's something that appeals to you. Autonomy also has a, a system whereby, you know, there's a peer reviewing system on autonomy. So it's a nice way to sort of get in a community of writers, particularly if you don't have a writing group. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very good. Uh, another thing that's very useful, certainly when you're looking at editing, is looking at a couple of the automatic critting sites, which are very useful. Autocrit.com is very, very good. And what that does is it's never going to substitute for a proper editor. But what it does is you can paste sections of your text into the website and it will analyze it for you and tell you how many words you're repeating, how many phrases you're repeating, what cliches of expression you're using, what the pace of your paragraphs is and so on and so forth. It is a very, very useful website. You can use it for free. You can put 500 words in and you can use it. And you can then put another 500 words in, then another so, 500 words. There's so much to learn. It, it, there's other there's other massive things as well. I mean, we, j- just the writing, it's such, a, it's such a crazy thing, but just the writing is is the tip of the iceberg when you actually start trying to get a book put out. There's there's all kinds of other things you've got to think about. You've got to think about your book cover and you've got to think about all this all this other stuff. But an editor uh, is, is, as I've learned, vitally important. But also readers. I mean, I've got some great guys on Twitter and who have um, signed up to the newsletter on my website and, and all the rest of it who have been giving me some really, really good feedback. And actually, following the feedback, I've completely rewritten the first three chapters of the book. Sure. Uh, the first three chapters of the book were written, in fact, they were the, prob- they were the earliest thing that I did. I started Static Push probably six or seven years ago. And I wrote down the framework for the first couple of chapters. And then when I revisited it more recently for NaNoWriMo, I revised those chapters. And as it turned out, they didn't sit right. They didn't feel right in, in terms of the rest of the book and the way that the, the rest of the book was written. And eventually I said, you know what, I can't rewrite these in a way that's going to make them fit. So I ended up completely scrapping them and starting all over again. And it was the best thing that I could have done. Although it feels very, very painful at the time to have to do it because it's almost like you're throwing away something that you've created. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I mean, I have where I was saying earlier about the pitch for Tor, I did look at a few of my works and I've got one particular set of stuff where there's something like 250,000 words worth of of fantasy. And I thought, you know what? I could put some of that into it. And I got through 4,000 words of rewriting and just went, I can't get 30,000 words of this in a month because it is going to take me almost as long as it would be just to completely write it again. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just not good enough. Yeah. 
it is nice to revisit and see that stuff because you do get to a stage when you revisit and maybe after 18 months you come back to it and you read it again you go you know what that still stands up and when you hit that then actually you know that you can just carry on yeah you know you yeah know you can go right the next one you can go right the next one there'll, there'll always be tweaks you will always go back and decide that oh i don't need to say john said yeah right there i don't need on the top of the hill right there you know there's always going to be tweaks but you know eventually it starts to stand up and once it does then it's very you know, you know your style has evolved you've got it down and you just need to push on and, and write the stories you want to write. There's two massive barriers that I found to writing, and again, this is possibly one. Of, this is one of my first experiences. I've done creative creative writing before for for very small pieces, and they've been posted various places around the internet. But this is my first attempt at an actual full novel. But there's two massive barriers to to writing: when to start, and when to stop. And that <laughs> those are the biggest things I've learned because you've it's it's sometimes find you find it difficult to get the motivation to go for it and to start. Sometimes you're not entirely sure when to start because should you have a framework? Should you just start spilling out what's in your head? And then at other times you've gone over and you've re reread and you've revised and you've changed and you've tweaked so many times that sooner or later it's it's time to stop it. And that's when it's best to give it to somebody else and get them to go over it because you've done about as much as you can. Usually I find, and I mean this might be different for you in terms of how you write, but I find that knowing the ending of the story is probably the most important thing before you start. Yes, yeah, and I had that. Luckily, I'm, I've been quite lucky with the way that I've written Static Push, but I had the entire framework of the story in my head before I went ahead with it, and I've got, again, the entire framework of, of subsequent books in my head before I start it. The meat in the middle tended to kind of flow as I went. The framework of the entire beginning, middle, and end was definitely there. Yeah, I think having the ending, if you don't have the ending, you you don't know what you're writing towards. And actually that that indecision starts to appear on the page. Yeah. Similarly, if you walk away and you leave it for too long, another thing that you can occasionally do is you write yourself back in. So what will happen is that the first six or seven hundred words of what you do will basically be your characters reflecting on what just happened. Yeah, because what you're doing is you're trying to get the feel of it all back. Whereas actually the characters, nothing's changed for them. I found having, um, having an abridged kind of framework for myself, every time I wrote a chapter or just prior to writing a chapter, I'd give myself an, a, a small abridged version, 250 words or something, very, very small. And then I could reflect back on it. If, I, if it was a month before I wrote the next part or even a few weeks before mm. I wrote the next part, I could skim over that and I could kind of give myself a feel for the way that it was. But I found that in doing that, it was quite important as well to write that small excerpt write it as if you were a reader so don't just skim over the you know bullet points of the events that happened in that chapter give it the feel give it the emotional context that that chapter is in so you can put yourself back into that chapter without having to read the entire thing through my sort of method is really is to to do that first edit pass so actually yeah. what i'll do is is write write and write and write and then if i take a break then i'll do an edit pass and if i do an edit pass then that sort of gets me back into the flow and then obviously by the time I get to the end of the edit pass, you just carry straight on. So that's usually not too bad. So yeah, so, you know, I mean, obviously that uh, might be a tip of anybody out there is listening and is aspiring towards writing a novel. There's one or two things that um, may be right in terms of our experience. Uh, they may work for other people, but, um, you know, maybe wrong. You've all got to find your own path. Yeah, you? it's different for everybody. It's been it's been quite difficult learning everything, but I'd, uh, I'd certainly be willing to offer maybe not advice, but experience because it's very difficult to offer advice on something like this but certainly giving your own experience is hopefully going to be helpful for somebody okay so 
That's essentially it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email info at laveradio.com, Facebook slash Lave Radio, at Lave Radio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding Fozza101 to your Skype contacts. You can also join our TeamSpeak server where commanders come to hang out and chat about Elite Dangerous. That's at laveradio.teamspeak3.com. If you want to find out more about Richard's science fiction novel Static Push and his general ramblings, you can find him over on www.richard-horsley.com and you can catch the Ready Player 2 podcast, Ready Player 2, that's T-O-W.co.uk. So until next time, watch out for those supernovas and take care, Space Adventurers. Goodbye. Okay.